Welcome to Governmental Astrology. I'm Linda Rowe. Today is November 30th, and we're having an eclipse right now as I speak these words. It began a couple of hours ago, and I went outside at that time, and I looked at the moon, because um, it's a lunar eclipse. Um, the moon was beautiful, and it was almost directly overhead, very high up in the sky. The eclipse part of tonight is not immediately obvious to somebody just looking at the moon. And I know that's why lunar eclipses tend to generate quite a lot less excitement than solar eclipses do, but uh, nevertheless, this eclipse is going to be a fairly important one, and here's why. Uh, this eclipse is a penumbral eclipse, which means that we will see the moon and we will see us passing over a part of the moon. Uh, what we're going to see is our own shadow, kind of like Groundhog's Day. Um, Groundhog's, Groundhog Day is one of my favorite movies, and it is a very Neptunian movie. Very Neptunian. Um, so just what part of us will, we, will we be seeing in this shadow? And that's the difficult part to know. Um, I see two things. A full moon, which this is. Um, so it's the end of something. Um, so this is the end of something, and then we're seeing ourselves in the ending. So we're seeing our own shadow going across the moon. And this shadow is the penumbra. It's part darkness and part light. So it's not complete darkness. Um, it's the shade. of it's, We shaded the moon. And, um, you know, we like to put a lot of things in the shade here. We, we like to put a lot of things under the rug. Basically, we are entering into a time where we're going to have to look at our own shadow. And probably over and over again, we'll have to look at our own shadow because we're dealing with Neptune. And Neptune is the ocean. And one of the main ways that we experience the ocean is waves. So I want to look for a second at the significance of the moon before I move into uh, Neptune. The moon is a reflecting body. And when, when we look at the moon, we're seeing light from the sun. And there is something to this, especially with full moons. There's a lot of light reflecting back to us from the sun during a full moon. And we don't always realize this, but um, when we see the moon, we are experiencing quite a lot of refraction. And refraction is uh, when you move from one medium to another. So uh, we look at the moon through air, and then we have to look at the moon through space, uh, a lack of air. And that changes the angle that we're seeing things. It's easy to forget about refraction when we look at the moon and it's way up in the sky, but when it's down close to the, um, to the horizon and we see the moon as being great big huge, we don't really... The, one of the reasons is because of refraction, that we're seeing it uh, so huge. Um, it's things just... You can't look at things precisely with refraction. It changes... You can look at them, but you can't really know where they are or how big they are. So, um, 
it is true in a way that the moon is great big huge um, it's certainly bigger than Pluto it's almost a third bigger than Pluto so our moon is is pretty darn big this lunar eclipse is ending Trump's presidency and he's had quite a few of these um, penumbral eclipses kind of interestingly during his uh, four years in office and of course he had the big complete solar eclipse the great American eclipse on October uh, on August 21st 2017 and that one uh, the eclipse path went right straight through the middle of the United States and um, it sort of traced a path um, from the beginning of the uh, Civil War to the end uh, from the cities that it started in um, I did a, an episode on that back in the day but um, it is true Trump instead of uniting us has uh, illuminated the split let's say that and this this eclipse is connected to that one it's also connected to the one that's going to happen in two two weeks, but um, I'm saying this one is ending Trump's presidency. And if we're going to put a spotlight on the things that we've been seeing during Trump's presidency, um, we've got slavery that's certainly in there, inequality, violence, how we treat Earth, how we treat each other. And our big ones are our relationship to the Constitution and nuclear energy, just energy dependence in general. Um, there's a lot of stuff in these last four years. And we're not going to have to look at all of it necessarily, but just the key parts of it. Um, we're, we're beginning our journey into looking at all of these aspects of ourselves, um, the aspect part that keeps us from seeing ourselves clearly and so refraction that's sort of what I've been talking about what is it about us that keeps us from looking at ourselves clearly and the big thing that I see is belief and I've been talking quite a lot about belief and how I see it and I know that it's a difficult theme to hear mostly because um, well the way I see it, artificial belief is an artificial construction, it's a language, it's a symbolic language, as all languages are. Um, but belief is a very primary symbolic language. It's a symbolic language of thought, and it's meant to supplant, which means replace, our normal method for experiencing daily life on Earth. So being able to interpret things on our own two feet, being able to know what's dangerous, what's not dangerous, what's bad for us, what's not bad. Belief is meant to take over that response, uh, a response that all wild animals depend on. And so the more we rely on belief, the less wild we become. Uh, so we experience something in our daily lives and belief immediately tells us what to think about that experience. 
And there are patterns to this. It shoots you off in the same direction all the time. And I'm going to get into that at some point. But basically for today, um, one of the reasons I've seen that people don't want to listen to my saying that belief is something we're going to have to deal with is because most people love their beliefs. And actually, most people don't know what to do without their beliefs. So if they didn't have belief, they don't even know how to be in the world. It's almost as if um, I'm telling them, um, I don't know, that they, they just don't know how to be in the world without belief, without relying on belief. And so this is a deep, deep, deep part of ourselves. But what we don't realize quite often is that beliefs are extremely painful. And if you're able to loosen the hold that belief has on you, um, it's going to decrease the amount of pain that you feel almost immediately and drastically. Even small decreases in the amount of belief that you're leaning on. It's a pretty amazing thing, actually. Um, and, and just for grins, I want to show you a way that we're now leaning on belief much, much more than we were, um, well, for my initial, I, I did some research, and for my initial research, I did uh, research back a hundred years. So um, I'll fill in the gaps later, but as we're moving through this, um, I looked at everything that the Supreme Court has put out about its rulings. And I started with the first ruling, actually. Um, their first court case, the Supreme Court case, first court case was West v. Barnes on August 3rd, 1791. And they didn't really make a decision on West v. Barnes because it was settled out of court, but it was their first case. And then they had a number of other cases. Um, through the 1790s into the early 1800s. Um, I found a cool website where you can read the rulings uh, in the flourishy handwriting that they used back in the 1790s. They, you can see the actual document that they wrote everything up on. It's on a microfiche. Um, and so for the 1790s, I, I didn't see a single use of the word belief or beliefs. The Supreme Court, when it issued a ruling, Nothing about belief. Then, uh, in a, from the cases of, from 1816 on, um, it's easier to find them, uh, it's easier to read them when they're typed up and put on a, a website. So there's a number of um, open case uh, websites where you can read everything that the Supreme Court has put out. So. I have a sheet that I wrote down all of the uh, Supreme Court cases that I looked at. Um, there's a link to the, the ruling online, uh, or, and you can perform your own research on this if you wish. Uh, there's a find um, button up at the top, and you can hit that and type in the word belief, and it'll count up the number of beliefs that are in the document. It's a lot easier than going through and reading them like I was at the beginning. Um, okay, so I'm going to 
quickly list off uh, some of the court cases that I put, that I, I looked at, and the years so that you can start tracking. So no belief uh, in the 1790s, no belief in the early 1800s. Um, I was able to use the find function uh, from Martin V. Hunter's lessee. That was a case in 1816. There were no beliefs in that ruling. Cohen's v. Virginia in 1821, no beliefs again. Ogden v. Saunders in 1827, that one had one belief, uh, one, one instance of the word belief. And then Barron v. Meyer and the city of Baltimore in 1833, no belief. Um, so that, that, one, that one belief I found in 1827, and then in 1856 I found the second use of belief. And that was with Dred Scott v. Sanford. And everyone's heard of Dred Scott before. Um, Supreme Court case, extremely important. And they only used four beliefs in that one. And it's hard to imagine just how long Dred Scott is. It's, it might be the longest written. I, I, of course, I'm not an expert in this, but my goodness, it was long. Um, it just goes on and on and on. And this case is so important. Uh, Dred Scott changed everything. And uh, just let me read you one part that this has nothing to do with belief, but um, okay, this is in Dred, Dred Scott v. Sanford. It says, the change in public opinion and feeling in relation to the African race which has taken place since the adoption of the Constitution, cannot change its construction and meaning, and it must be construed and administered now according to its true meaning and intention when it was formed and adopted. So that's part of what was written in Dred Scott v. Sanford. Um, I find this astonishing. This is the beginning of originalism, right here, Dred, Dred v. Scott, Dred Scott v. Sanf Sanford, sorry. Um, I think you could make an argument that the Supreme Court is partly or largely responsible for the Civil War. Um, how would things have turned out if originalism had not made such a dastardly statement? Um, when, when you hear somebody like Amy Barrett or the late Antonin Scalia say that they're an originalist, uh, I would say ask them to explain originalism in terms of Dred, v, Dred Scott. Um, Dred Scott makes it almost impossible to ever get rid of slavery because it made slave states more powerful and every count that was made after that was was to make sure that slavery was well represented in the federal government. As far as I can see, Dred Scott is pure evil and it's the beginning of originalism. Even so, it only uses four instances of belief. Um, so, after Dred Scott, there are quite a few Supreme Court cases that uh, 
the Supreme Court issues, and they don't use belief at all. United States v. Cruikshank, 1875, no belief. That one, by the way, is another evil one put out by the Supreme Court. Uh, we have Virginia v. Reeves, 1880, that one has no belief. Southern Pacific Railroad Company v. California, 1886, no belief. There are even uh, five civil rights cases that are listed as civil rights cases, 1883, and those have no belief in them at all. Um, <clears throat> United, I'm going to go back just for one second. United States v. Cruikshank, 1875. That was really the beginning of Black Lives Matter. 1875, uh, Supreme Court ruled that killing black men is okay, at least by states. Uh, okay, so we're all the way up to 1886 without there being tons and tons of belief. Um, oh, there, there was one case that was specifically on belief in 1878, and uh, that one had... Uh, the syllabus had three instances of belief, and the case had 17 for a total of 20 in that case. So I want to fast forward all the way through up until the current day when we began to have our birth control uh, Supreme Court cases, our gay rights Supreme Court cases. And I want to show you how many times belief shows up in these cases. So Burwell v. Hobby Lobby Stores, Incorporated, uh, that one was in 2014. It's the anti-birth control case. Uh, the syllabus has 29 beliefs. The opinion has 60 beliefs. The concurrence has 22 beliefs. Justice Breyer's dissent has 18 beliefs. And the regular dissent has 54 beliefs in it. All right, and then we have a Burgefell v. Hodges, that's the gay marriage one, 2015. Uh, the syllabus has two beliefs, Alito's dissent has three beliefs, Robert's dissent has four beliefs, and Kennedy's opinion has five beliefs. Uh, moving on from that, 2015, big year in terms of belief in the Supreme Court. We have Holt v. Hobbs, which was another... Um, Hobby Lobby anti-birth control case. Um, the syllabus has 11 beliefs. Alito's, Alito's opinion has 18 beliefs. Sotomayor's concurrence has five beliefs. And Ginsburg's con concurrence has seven beliefs in it. Uh, quite a few. Then we have Zubik v. Burwell, 2016, and this was a very short case because they were remanding it back to the lower courts. Uh, when they said to remand it, they had zero beliefs in it, but the lower court case, uh, Little Sisters of the Poor v. Burwell, which is in the Tenth Circuit, the Tenth Circuit is right here in Colorado, uh, that one was listed in 2015. That one had 64 beliefs in it. Zubik v. B Burwell, although you have to go to the Tenth Circuit to see the, the ruling, actually. Um, Masterpiece Cake Shop v. Colorado Civil Rights Commission, also right here in Colorado. 
2018. That was kicking the gay guys out of the bakery. The syllabus on that one had 12 beliefs. The procedural history had five beliefs. Kennedy's opinion had 29 beliefs. Thomas's concurrence had 10 beliefs. Gorsuch's concurrence had 20 beliefs. Kagan's concurrence had eight beliefs. And Ginberg's, Gin, Gin, Ginsburg's dissent had seven. Whew, that's a lot. Um, we have a Little Sisters of the Poor and Peter Paul Home v. Pennsylvania 2020. That one had a total of 39 beliefs disseminated throughout the document. I'm hoping that you can see that um, these re recent cases, 2014 to the present day, have many, many, many more beliefs in them than earlier court cases. And you can see where the ones in the late 1800s were starting to have uh, beliefs written into them, but not at nearly the, the number. They sort of exploded this belief. And I would say that um, belief does have a sort of contagion to it where it does explode and people catch belief one from another. Um, it's belief's importance in our society is growing today. And when the Supreme Court is using belief to fortify their own arguments, um, and you can see that the Supreme Court has been the arm of government that has most strongly worked to remove rights from U.S. citizens, I'm hoping that you can begin to see my concern on belief and um, how valuable it can be to us to lessen our dependence on belief, even though I don't like the word value. Um, but it will benefit us to lessen our dependence on belief, just to move further away from it. Uh, and we're going to probably get that chance because Neptune is squaring the moon currently, today, right now, and Neptune will square the moon for a day or so. But then it's going to be squaring Mercury on December 14th, two weeks from now. Um, and that's the day of the solar eclipse, which the solar eclipse is the day of the new moon. So that's the, the day of beginning new things. And Neptune is going to be squaring Mercury, the planet of belief. Um, there's certainly other stuff going on that day, too. Uh, Pluto is um, very prominent. And Saturn and Jupiter are sitting almost on top of one another that day. Um, and they're very close to Pluto. So... I found that Neptune and Pluto often work together, even when they're not in conjunction with one another or in aspect even. Um, but the Neptune squaring Mercury will certainly be working together with all of Neptune's aspects. Um, I've often found that Neptune is a harder transit than Pluto, and here's why. Neptune is the planet that will allow us to change direction. Uh, we will steer away from totalitarianism with Neptune showing us the way. And this is because Neptune is the riptide. And the riptide can do two things. Um, <clears throat> it can take you out to sea, even if you're seated on the ground. 
in the ocean. The riptide carries you out to sea. And that's because the riptide is moving sand. And that's the second way. Uh, because the, the, a really strong riptide will move sand up a beach or down a beach. But it'll move it in one way or another, depending on which way the riptide is going. And if you're in a really strong riptide, as the wave comes in, the sand is deposited on the shore. And when the wave goes out, the sand goes out with the wave. Um, you don't really notice it when you're looking at the riptide and you're standing on, on dry ground. But if you're in the ocean, if you're caught in the riptide, um, and I, I have been, I experienced this phenomenon as a trap door. So the waves would come in, I could stand, and when the waves went out, I was swimming. And I could feel the depth below my feet. And then the waves would come back in again, and I could stand again. It was relentless, though. Um, you might think, well, the standing should make it easier. And it did a little bit, but um, it was sort of disorienting. Standing, swimming, standing, swimming, over and over again. And I just made sure I kept breathing. And I've told this story to people, and they sort of look at me and they say, well, during a riptide, you're supposed to swim parallel to the shore, idiot. I've actually had people say something like that to me. <laughs> and I have to say, when you're in a really strong riptide, there's no swimming. You're not going to be swimming um, parallel to the shore or any which way. You're only surviving it. Um, you're just trying to stay with your head above water. Um, I suppose if you're younger, you can swim on top of a riptide. Um, but as a, a, a big, huge ad adult, you are not. And I, I just, you're, you're not going to be swimming on top of the riptide. So, um, and each time the sand comes, uh, each time the, the wave comes in, it's moving sand a little further down the beach, a little further down the beach, a little further down the beach. It's a pretty amazing phenomenon. Um, so when we're experiencing this wave phenomenon of Neptune, I would say to, to remember that we're all in this together. So blame is not going to help us. Blame is not going to get us out of it. Uh, we're going to be looking at our beliefs. At the end, when it's all over, uh, we're going to be pointed in a new direction and we'll be pointing away from totalitarianism a bit. Not, not a whole bunch, but a bit. And then there's just one more thing. This whole pandemic, when it began, um, it began with a drone attack on an Iranian general. Uh, Trump assassinated Qasem Soleimani in Iraq, nonetheless, even though Qasem Soleimani is Iranian. Uh, Qasem Soleimani was assassinated in Iraq by Trump on January 3rd, 2020. And we just had another targeted assassination of an Iranian nuclear scientist this time on November 27th, 2020, on Friday. And from an astrological perspective, Pluto has nuclear energy written all over it. And from a sovereignty perspective, no country would ever stand for two targeted assassinations. No country would. 
and this both of these assassinations have totalitarianism written all over it so we'll see what happens um, it's in the mix here along with everything that I just said the ending of the Trump administration and us looking at what we've done and looking at how we're going to move forward in terms of this new solar eclipse that's going to happen in two weeks. So, All right, my email address is governmentalastrology at gmail.com. My telephone number is 720-608-0309. As always, I'm glad you're here.